Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I am your substitute host, Jade Isiri Ramos, filling in for Douglas Haynes. Globally, wellness is a trillion dollar industry. From yoga classes to supplements to natural skincare products to at home cycling equipment, it seems like wellness is all around us. But what is wellness? Is this a new phenomenon or has it been around for decades and ramped up with the influence with the help of uh, fitness influencers? Today's guest is a journalist who specializes in health, wellness, tech and women's issues. She is the author of The Gospel Wellness, Jim's Guru Goop and the False Promise of Self-Care. It came out last year, but will be in available in paperback tomorrow. Um, my guest is Rena Raphael. Rena, welcome to A Public Affair. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I know that you are a busy person, so I really appreciate you making the time for us today. Definitely. Um, okay, right, Rena, start us off. What is wellness? What do we mean when we say uh, we're talking about wellness today? Yeah, I mean, that's the number one question I get asked. And I think that's really testament to this entire industry <laughs> and the issues within it. Um, so, you know, at its most basic level, uh, the pursuit of well-being is outside the realm of medicine. So it's essentially everything that medicine and insurance won't touch. Mm. So it's all the ways we want to physically, mentally, and even spiritually take care of ourselves. So that could be nutrition, fitness, sleep, stress management. Um, I think one of the issues of, of trying to write this book is that we're talking about over a dozen subsectors. Um, but the thing is, is that the term wellness is really rather general and vague. There is no agreed upon definition of what well is. And it's one reason why the wellness industry has grown so big. Mm. Literally anything can be wellness as long as it makes you feel good. So it's grown into this huge industrial complex in which wellness um, is mostly basically an ambiguous marketing term that could just as easily mean activated charcoal toothpaste <laughs> as it does meditation. And so that's why you're seeing more and more sectors, you know, call themselves wellness and you start to see ridiculous items like CBD infused leggings, you know, they're all kind of shoved under this umbrella term. The thing is, is that basically wellness can mean almost anything, but when something means everything, it starts to mean nothing. Mm, yeah. Good point. Um, is, is it, is wellness new? Is, is the, is the word wellness new? Is it just the same stuff that we've been seeing, um, but with a new label of wellness on it? Well, wellness has become a little bit of a marketing term. Um, so that's been ramped up in the last uh, 15 years, but obviously it's nothing new. I mean, the current strain that we see right now in the market really started back in the 60s. But this idea of being well, of taking care of yourself, I mean, that goes back, you know, centuries. I mean, every culture has some interpretation of this. And in my book, every chapter actually has um, a little sidebar of some big trend that's big today, noting that this is nothing new. This has been done for centuries. Mm -hmm. We've done this all before. We just keep recycling these trends over and over again. Um, so it's not really new, but the, I would say the market and sort of the industrialization of it is a bit new. And if you go to certain other parts of the world, it doesn't look like what it looks like in America. Um, I give the example in the book of speaking to an Italian researcher. And I asked him, um, who works in this field? I said, you know, oh, what's wellness like in your country? And he started laughing and he goes, we don't use this word wellness. Mm. Um, and it's not something that we pursue like a job and that's individualistic. He's like, in my country, we have, you know, our lunches, we have fresh food, we have six weeks mandated vacation. We don't think of it. This thing is that you have to like get under control like you Americans do. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration a bit, but there is something to this about how Americans view wellness versus how maybe other countries think about it. In other countries, it might be more communal. It might be less pressure filled. It may not be as tied up in consumerism. Yeah, abso absolutely. I 
um, as I was reading your book, I was, and you and you put it out quite quite well. But it is wellness is about my own health, right? My own ability to be stress free, or my own ability to do it all and um, and have it all. But it isn't necessarily about um, the health of of our community or the society around me. Right, and I think that's just also very much. Again, what you see in this country is very much a reflection of an American culture and ethos. So the this is what I mean by it being productivity pressured. Mm. It's all on you, the individual, to figure out your health and take care of things versus maybe other cultures or countries where it's more of a communal aspect, yeah. right? There's no amount of yoga that is going to make up for the fact that we sometimes have a broken healthcare system, that your boss is emailing you after 6 p.m., that we don't have enough maternity benefits. Like this is kind of the problem with this industry that says it's all on you to fix this. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not zen enough or you're stressed out. You need to do something to fix it instead of maybe pointing the finger at sort of the root issues of why we don't feel well. And so for me, it's also been very interesting because my book has come out in other countries to see how other countries react to the American version of wellness. Like the UK has a very different interpretation of wellness because they have the NHS. They have, um, I wouldn't call it socialized, but they have a different healthcare system, which makes them react differently than Americans. Americans don't feel supported in a lot of ways. So they do think it's incumbent on them, they alone, to figure out their health. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, we're going to get into that really deep about um, what wellness is trying to solve, especially in the U.S. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to ask, do you have a personal relationship with wellness? Why is this something that um, you're drawn to in your work? Yeah. So my story is essentially that I was a huge wellness junkie. I tried out every single trend um, and bought every sort of supplement tool, uh, fitness class. I mean, I tried uh, underwater cycling classes. I did scream cardiotherapy. You know, I had a pantry that was full of biodynamic <laughs> organic wine. You name it, I had it. I mean, even my dog had bone broth sprinkled on his dog food. Um, and because I was so interested in the sector, I actually became a full-time wellness industry reporter for Fast Company Magazine. Um, and so I got to interview everyone from the Peloton founder to Gwyneth Paltrow to you name it, I interviewed them. And something funny happened um, about year two into this, I would call almost experiment. Number one, I wasn't feeling any better. Mm -hmm. If anything, I was suddenly stressed about all the things I had to do every day. You know, I was fetishizing health. You know, if I didn't work out or if I didn't get enough steps on my Fitbit, I would sort of, you know, freak out about it. I was worried about chemicals and everything. My diet was becoming disordered because I was nervous about all these food categories that I've been made terrified of. Um, and secondly, the more I interviewed these founders and businesses, the more I realized they had very little, if any, scientific evidence behind all of their cure-alls, you know, using air quotes for cure-alls. And so I kind of had an awakening where I was like, wow, there, um, there's a lot of problems in this industry. In fact, um, I would say the wellness industry is unwell. And that spurred me investigating this industry and finding out more about it. And I wanted a book that spoke to me because I saw a lot of experts out there debunking things and warning us about, you know, taking goop at face value. But I oftentimes felt they were a little patronizing or they were kind of blaming the consumer. And I looked at myself and all my friends, we were all doing this stuff. And I said, well, we're not dumb. What's happening here? Uh, how did we fall for it? And so the book really goes into the marketing and the psychology behind why we're all falling for this, but also why we feel a need for wellness, what's going on in America and specifically with women where we feel like we need to turn to this industry um, because we don't feel supported or we don't feel like we have the answers within medicine or we're unhappy with doc whatever it could be. There's so many reasons. I mean, I have 12 chapters. They're all a different reason about why we turn to wellness. And my job isn't necessarily to trash all of wellness. There's good within wellness, mm -hmm. there's bad, and there's a whole lot in between. It's really to try to help people figure out why they feel certain ways and also who to trust and what to be on the lookout for. 
Yeah, you you touch on this briefly, but you were looking around at you know you're in your book you you talk about being at the Goop convention, um, and you're looking around at almost solely women and almost entirely white women. Um, why do you think that that's the demographic that just <laughs> seems to like um, gravitate towards wellness? Um, well, I'll, I'll talk more about women uh, widely, but there are a number of reasons, and these are not all the reasons. These are just mm-hmm. some of them. Um, but number one is women, if you're to believe uh, the stats and surveys, women are more stressed than men mm. for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, life, modern life is just stressful. Um, you're talking about the news, politics, uh, fear of climate change, everything. Everything feels very, very out of control to people. And for women especially, um, if they're working and they're taking care of more of the household chores and they're taking care of children, they just feel like they need extra support and they're not getting it. Um, women are also more dissatisfied with mainstream medicine in part because they interact with it more. You know, they've been going to the gynecologist since maybe they were a teenager. They've had more exposure to the system and therefore probably lodge more complaints. Or, you know, I've spoken to plenty of women who have legitimate complaints about maybe they didn't feel like they had a great experience during childbirth in a hospital. Um, That will also maybe turn off people to modern medicine and help make them want to look elsewhere. Um, The other problem, too, is that there just hasn't been an enough research into women's health conditions, especially chronic health conditions. Women's health research has been historically underfunded and under-researched. So a lot of times you have women go to the doctor, you know, tell them about something that's really painful for them or something they're struggling with. And unfortunately, the doctor kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, I, I, I can't help you. I don't have answers for you. So out of desperation, you know, sometimes people will try anything. And so they might go to different industries or, you know, alternative health looking for something that might help them or even just finding a community of people who will be there for them. Yeah. What, um, what you're saying almost sounds like less woo woo e than um, I think we give sometimes give wellness credit for and is more like doing your due, di- due diligence, right? No, I, I think the way I'm just because modern medicine doesn't have the answers mm-hmm. means that alternative health does. Right. So, no, I, I, I think a lot of times um, some of these industries are actually preying on women's vulnerabilities mm. because there aren't answers for everything. I mean, we've come a long ways in science and medicine, but we don't have the answers to everything. And it is very sad. And I do think that instead we should be putting pressure on research institutions to help fund some of these chronic conditions that women are suffering from. But unfortunately, when you're so desperate or you need a community, you might veer towards something that doesn't have really any strong evidence behind it. Another reason is just that this industry targets women and their vulnerabilities and anxieties, and oftentimes in a very kind of sneaky way. So you saw kind of like diet culture be repackaged into wellness. (laughs) So a lot of the pressures that exist for women, including body image pressures, et cetera, like those have been sort of repackaged under the wellness industry. Um, And oftentimes there's also just a lot of fear mongering. So if you look at something like, um, unfortunately, like the organic industry, a lot of times they target young moms and they use marketing that really talks about like if you don't you know have quote-unquote chemical free ingredients which is a ridiculous statement then you know you're going to put your child's life in danger they do this sort of marketing that really terrifies people and unfortunately it's just human nature where we respond more to negative information than positive information Uh, it's the same reason why politicians launch negative attacks against their opponents we remember negative information. In the book, I talk about um, scientists who worked at food companies who came forward and said that their marketing department purposely tried to scare the consumer in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see this all the time. Um, I think especially within clean beauty, there's a lot of fear mongering. Um, and as I say, I, I can't remember the last time I spoke to a man who was terrified of his deodorant. <laughs> you know, why is it always women? There's a reason for that. Yeah. They're targeted. Um, you know, and I've had some marketing specialists tell me like, yeah, we don't go after men because they don't respond to it. Women mm-hmm. do. So there's, you know, and I go into all of these reasons why this is happening. Again, it's a lot of psychology. It's a lot of marketing within the book. So those are just some of the reasons why women respond more to this industry, but there's far more. And also everyone has their own reasons. So, you know, that's why within the book, I go into so many different reasons, so many different sectors, because someone can say they're into wellness, but they're into fitness and nutrition and somebody else might be more into, I don't know, 
crystals and supplements. So everyone's really, really different. Right, right. When everything's marketed as wellness, there's so many things that that could be. Yeah. Yeah. But this industry really thrived and I would say a high income and unfortunately sometimes low science literate consumer. So someone who has the funds to pursue a lot of these things and buy all of these products and download all these apps, but also someone who may not know enough about science or hasn't really been taught um, the critical thinking and sort of assessing the marketing or understanding studies, which I mean, none of us, I never had that until I learned it. So the consumer isn't really armed against a lot of these tactics and the marketing is just so, so powerful. So I never blame the consumer because- everyone I know fell for it. Yeah, I think that there's, you're talking about this also division of labor within a household. And I think um, the fact that, you know, even today, women are often making a lot of the, the decisions for the household. It's like decision fatigue. It's like, well, obviously, I'm going to pick this the thing that is good for my family, that's marketed as such, because, you know, it helps me make the decision as opposed to doing, um, you know, really getting in there and, and understanding the science behind um, what what we're consuming or what we're um, putting on our faces or what we're cleaning yeah, our and, and I with. think people respond to that sort of negative fear mongering type of marketing, um, and you know also uh, I, wellness seekers tend to be uncertainty avoidant people. Mm. They want certainty, and that's why I talk so much about how this the wellness industry is so much about control. You think you can control things by buying a lot of these uh, products, you know, and oftentimes these products will say, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that you don't get sick or, you know, especially supplements and wellness influencers, you can stave off aging and stress and all these things. It is a sort of way to wield back control in a society or a lifestyle that you feel like is getting increasingly out of control, which many women feel like. And I understand that. Uh, the question is, is whether these products are actually doing what they say they're going to do. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, saying, saying what the product says they're going to do or doing what the product says they're going to do, um, in your book, when you start talking about clean eating, um, I want to pivot, I want to pivot there, but I also want to just take a, a moment to say that, like, as we're talking about wellness, as we're talking about these different things that get branded as wellness or, um, you know, health, that we're not saying that what you're, what you're doing, if, you know, you eat clean or you practice with crystals. We're not saying that any of those things um, are wrong or, or we're dissing that in any way. We're just saying that um, sometimes you have to dig deeper than, than the face value. Um, but anyway, so I want to talk about clean eating and you talked a lot about how diet has become like a bad word. And so you have all these diet companies um, rebranding, right? You talk about Weight Watchers rebranding mm. to WW um, and things that were people no longer talking about this is a diet to help you lose weight but it is a it is a diet to help you lose weight right um yeah and i i think in the book i talk about the fact that when i was at fast company i interviewed um the head of weight watchers when they were going through a rebrand a couple of years ago they rebranded from weight watchers to ww Mm -hmm. um trying to sort of obscure the word weight. And um, they had told me that they had seen sales plummet over the last few years. And so they surveyed their customers and said, why are you no longer wanting to work with Weight Watchers? And the response they received was, "Um, we are sick of dieting. We no longer want to diet. We're not doing that anymore. We're in a new era of body positivity and we refuse to diet. Mm -hmm. And so Weight Watchers response was, okay, let's get rid of the word diet, (laughs) you know? And so I think a lot of times there's sort of like this masking of what's going on with just different terminology. And so you no longer see the word diet, but you see words like the keto lifestyle, um, clean living. I mean, everything is kind of instead used around the words lifestyle instead of diet. But at the end of the day, if you're abiding by something that involves, you know, eliminating entire categories or severe calorie restriction it is still a diet but it's it's no longer pc to use that terminology and you're seeing that sort of idea of kind of like obscuring what you're actually doing a lot um i have a um 
a newsletter called Well To Do on Substack. And I talk about the fact that now that a lot of things have gone out of fashion or they've been debunked, you see everyone trying to do this. So for example, you know, in years past, everyone was talking about detoxes and cleanses. Well, there's been so many news outlets and so many experts who've come forward and saying that detoxes and cleanses don't work and they're not necessary. Mm -hmm. But now you have a whole bunch of brands and influencers coming out and saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not selling you a detox. I'm selling you a reset. Mm. Reset is the new word for a detox or a cleanse. And so you see this all the time where they're trying to sort of pretend they're switching sides, but they're not really doing so. Yeah. You So you just brought up something that we haven't talked about yet, which is influencers. Um, these people who are like your friend in your in your phone who's telling you about this great new lifestyle that you can have to look just like them or be just like them have the life that they have i i don't know you know i i'm not sure how long you've been in this world but have you seen the power of influencers change since you've been working in in this um the sector yeah i mean the the thing about influencers is that they have so much more power and sway over a consumer because, you know, I give the example of that, you know, 20 years ago, if you wrote some sort of lifestyle or diet book, you know, it kind of waited on your nightstand until you had, you know, 20 minutes before bed for you to read it. And maybe mm -hmm. you finished it over a month or so. It's a completely different game now. Now you have these influencers in your Instagram posting several times a day. That's how many times you can interact with them. Not even that, you can DM with them. You could start a relationship with them. Now compare that to doctors or medical professionals yeah. who on average, I think the average time for a medical appointment is somewhere around 15 to 17 minutes. And they're so busy, you can't generally DM with your doctor. So it's kind of like this unfair advantage where these influencers have so much more sway than like maybe a medical expert who actually knows what they're talking about. Um, and at the same time, I sympathize with a lot of women. A lot of them are in pain. A lot of them are looking for answers. A lot of them are looking to simplify what I call nutrition mania, let's say, where you're inundated every day from the media about what diet you should do and today eggs are good for you, tomorrow they're not good for you. And so they just want the answers. And here's someone who's offering it all up on a silver platter, not to mention they're usually aspirational. They usually have, you know, the kitchen the size of a small European country and everything's glossy and gorgeous and they only talk about how wonderful everything is. That's very, very powerful. Um, so I understand the appeal and I think that's also why it can be quite problematic for the health and medical industry. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I also, I feel like influencers feel like they're not trying to do it in bad faith, right? So it doesn't feel like you're being tricked. You, it feels like someone has found an answer and they're just like you and all you have to do is do what they did. Yeah. And in the book, I talk about, um, this is a little different. This was um, fitfluencers. Mm -hmm. So um, this is a specific type. Fitfluencers are fitness influencers. Um, but there was a study that was done that showed that fitfluencers actually can be, you know, I don't want somewhat damaging to self to your self-esteem more so than magazines. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is that when you read a fashion magazine and you see all these glossy photos and you see these models, you think, oh, well, they're kind of like a different species. They're a supermodel. But when you see a footfluencer and they're so fit and they somehow manage to squeeze in six hours of, I don't know, fitness, you think, oh, they're just like me and they're able to do it and I can't. There's something about someone being kind of like you that adds even an extra pressure. So actually, it could be even more damaging to your self-esteem because you're like, oh, if the average person can do it, why can't I? Yeah. Um, Rena, I was wondering, as, as I was driving to war today, I was um, wondering, you know, you wrote this book. It came out last year in 2022. And so I was and I, and I feel like TikTok's been relatively big for the past few years. But I was wondering if as you started the book, maybe TikTok wasn't as prevalent or I mean, for for like millennial the millennial audience you know instagram reels just became more prevalent um than than maybe they had access to tiktok or were using tiktok um and so i was wondering if you have any sense of like the you know 10 to 
45 second videos having a um, kind of more potent impact on on consumers. Yeah. And I wrote a piece about this for The New York Times um, about um, health misinformation on TikTok Mm. kind of run amok. And so, yes, especially with uh, a younger demographic um, and my current reporting also tracks things like the borax trend that went viral, the cottage cheese and mustard diet. You know, Mm. so I've been tracking the TikTok trends as well. They are a little bit more impactful with a younger audience. The one thing I will say is that and again, this is the New York Times piece. We have a lot more scientists and health experts who are now joining TikTok and in real time are trying to correct a lot of these, um, you know, health influencers who are just kind of running amok with misinformation. Obviously, they're still outnumbered, but there has been a concentrated effort from research institutions, uh, even the government, to try to fund more of these experts to go online and debunk them or to just add further context. So I am hopeful a little bit about that. But again, they are still very much outnumbered. But yeah, TikTok is an issue. It's very, very different than Instagram, and it's a different demographic. Um, But listen, there's always going to be misinformation. That's, and there's always going to be hucksters. That's as old as time. That's since the snake oil salesman. Um, And I think the best thing we can do is try to arm people uh, with critical thinking and hopefully get more and more of these health experts out there who can sort of shed some light on things that are generally too good to be true. Yeah. One of the the quotes in your book that I, um, I found really interesting and true. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the people you talk to who's, uh, um, I believe, in the medical field and also uh, produces content um, said, you know, it's easy to make a lot of videos if you're not doing research or check, uh, fact checking or, um, you know, trying to get out truth. Um, and so it's hard to compete with. Um, yeah, that. if you're just making stuff up, yeah. I can make stuff up right now, <laughs> you know, and that'll take me five yeah. minutes. Um, so, yeah, it is harder work for them. And I think that was actually Lab Muffin Beauty Science, which mm-hmm. is a great, great follow. Uh, Dr. Michelle Wong, she uh, busts myths about beauty and cosmetics and skincare. And I highly, highly uh, recommend following her on TikTok. She's amazing and she makes science fun. I know I sound like a nerd saying that, (laughs) but like, anyway, she's a good follow. Awesome. Uh, Well, you are listening to A Public Affair. I am your host, Jade Isiri Ramos, and I'm speaking with Rena Raphael. Rena is a journalist who specializes in health, wellness, tech, and women's issues. She was a feature contributor for Fast Company magazine. She's also written for The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, CBS, uh, NBC News, among other publications. Her wellness industry newsletter, Well To Do, covers trends and offers market analysis. We are talking today about her book, The Wellness Gospel. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 608-256-2001. Rena, can we talk about the title of your book, um, The Gospel of Wellness? And um, it has like a like a skincare, like a skin cream container with a little halo over it um, on the cover. You oh yeah, <laughs> um, it's a little it's tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's very tongue in cheek, and there's like this um, spiritual ritual, like belief centered component of wellness. Um, why did you like call your book the Wellness Gospel, and what do you see um, like the religious sort of aspect of wellness? Yeah, so um, essentially, I saw with a certain group of people. This is not obviously reflective of anyone that. Um, the pursuit of health was not naturally folded into their life. They Mm -hmm. were fetishizing it and they were imbuing it with values and meaning that had nothing to actually do with health or science. Um, And I saw that for a certain group, it was providing things like community, identity, purpose, meaning, all of the things that you would actually get from religion at a certain point, but suddenly they were getting it from health or the pursuit of health, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so when people would say things like, oh, you know, soul cycle is my church, they were actually kind of being literal. They really got something out of it. Um, And to some degree you can say, well, that's great. I'm glad people have found their community. The issue is, is that when you wrap it up into health and the pursuit of health, 
it does kind of set you up for um, potentially problematic feelings or judgments um, because eventually we will all age. Mm -hmm. Um, We might get sick and it has nothing to do with how much you exercised or what you ate. Sometimes these things are genetic. And, um, you know, I saw people also, for example, talk about the fact that, you know, their gym was their church. Um, But as soon as they lost a job or they had an injury, they were no longer allowed to attend their church. So, you know, I give um, one example in my writing outside of the book is that I once profiled a gym that was just for pregnant women. Um, and when I went to interview these women at this gym in Soho, New York, I asked them, why did you join this gym? And they said, oh, we were all kicked out of our previous gyms. Once we started showing, they were afraid for us to come to our gym. And like, that was my family. That was my tribe. That was my community. And suddenly they were kind of kicked out. So like, these are some of the things that I think we don't necessarily always think about when we put this much investment into the wellness industry. Mm-hmm. Um, can you set the scene for people who maybe aren't familiar with like what um, the sort of emotional aspect of a place like Soul Cycle or um, some of the Peloton classes are? Like what, where, what, like what are they touching more than just like you know doing forty-five minutes, ninety minutes of cardio? Yeah. Well, I mean, it really depends also on what people are looking for, but you're talking about, um, it could be accomplishment. It's sometimes about somebody being able to achieve something and that could be, you know, stamina, strength, um, you know, a fitter body, whatever it is that person is looking for. Some people see it as a bit of uh, salvation. They think if they get fit or, you know, if they get to a certain type of exercise level, then that will stave off disease or get, getting sick. Um, I will say that uh, community is a huge, huge part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's obviously very lacking in American society. We live very, very solitary lives. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes what I would hear from people, and this is one of the reasons I joined a gym, is that they don't have time to see people or to fit in scheduling seeing their friends. I mean, I can't tell you how many women I've spoken to who say, oh, trying to get together for dinner with my friends is like herding cats, Mm -hmm. but they want to see people. And it's almost easier to just schedule going to the gym. And there's all, you know, a kind of a group of people who are always there for you then. Um, So, and by the way, that's how people used to view church or synagogue. Like I (laughs) go once a week and I see people there, Um, but now it's kind of shifted over to uh, the gym. And it's kind of funny. I wrote another piece for the New York Times about how now churches are trying to steal back from the the wellness industry and institute their own fitness classes to get people in there on weekends. Um, And then the last (laughs) thing is very charismatic leaders, right? Um, SoulCycle really, really perfected this. They originally hired people who came from Broadway, who were performers, who were great speakers. Um, And these people almost kind of act like... um, you know, kind of heads of churches in the sense that they inspire people and they talk about pushing your body and they talk, they talk about all these things that really, really kind of speak to our aspirational selves. Um, and that can be very, very powerful. So this is what I mean by that. A lot of these places provide all the things that we used to get out of religion, which could be guidance, meaning, purpose, community, whatever it is. And within the book, I actually explain how they model these gyms in very specific ways, everything from the lighting to the seating, et cetera, that really, really encompasses this experience. Yeah. There's like your body's making natural endorphins, right? When you exercise, but you're also having like a, like a spiritual moment with the people around you. Right. And um, also like a sense of kinship, Mm -hmm. like, you know, especially if you're doing like a, a class or you know, uh, a race or something like we all kind of got through this together. Um, and that can be very, very powerful. And I'm not necessarily saying that's all bad. Um, it's just being uh, clear about what these places can provide and what they cannot. Um, and especially I think if your community is dependent on a membership, just be aware of that. Yeah. Um, you know, because again, I've, I, especially during the pandemic, I interviewed so many people who just felt like they lost their community because of that. Yeah, I think you also in the in the book, you point to the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, it really showed that, hey, maybe the employees of SoulCycle aren't actually a big family who are protected when, you know, this happens, they they get furloughed without notice. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget these are businesses. Right. And businesses have bottom lines. And 
um, oftentimes I get the response of like, oh, so you think religion is perfect? I'm not saying that either. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, just be a little uh, clear eyed about what you're getting. Yeah, absolutely. I did. Um, I was reading that this this portion of the book with my when my husband was around, and I was like, "Oh, this is a really interesting point." And he's like, "I don't know. Sometimes churches also kick you out when you're not, uh, you know, providing what what needs to be provided into the church." Sure. And I'm not saying religion's perfect either. The one thing that religion has over, let's say, a gym uh, or many of these modalities is that they have uh, more entry points. And they generally um, are able to uh, help people who have fallen on better, on, on hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, they have just also had centuries to sort of perfect themselves. So it's a little different. I'm not saying they're perfect at all. Um, I'm just saying they generally have a little bit more flexibility for certain aspects that don't do as well within the wellness industry. And this, this also goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show, which is that um, churches can focus more on a collective community versus I think even if you're going to a, a class at a gym, you're not really thinking about how your actions are going to benefit the class, right? You're thinking about how fit you're going to be, how good you're going to look on vacation, um, those sort of things. Yeah. Um, and I think this is in general uh, a criticism I have of the wellness industry and in that it's very, it's oftentimes very individualistic. Mm-hmm. It's very self-focused. Um, it's not as communal. And I think, you know, oftentimes people read uh, my book's title and they get offended. They're like, what's wrong with self-care? There's nothing wrong with self-care. It's our current interpretation of self-care that I find quite problematic. It's all about me, myself, and I, and my credit card. Um, mm-hmm. It's all about like you know doing Peloton at home alone, taking a bubble bath alone, taking everything is you know writing your graduate journal. It's alone, alone, alone. Um, and one of the biggest, I would say, pillars of wellness is being with other people, is being part of a community, is social well-being, and that's kind of been eliminated by this industry in favor of just generally focusing on yourself. Um, And I think that leaves us rather kind of lonely. And also because this industry, it's very hard to make money off of uh, social interactions as much as individual purchases. That's one of the reasons they've excluded it. I think it's getting a little bit better. The industry is changing. It changes every six months. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's very individual focused. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, right? Is that if what you're being sold six months ago fixed what you're experiencing you would have no reason to to buy again or, or you know be a repeat customer and the industry can't can't yeah. thrive off that and also i mean this is why i make the case that the wellness industry works like fashion mm-hmm. every six months there's some new ingredient there's some new hack there's some new protocol that you need to do i keep reminding people i'm like Remember like seven years ago, everyone was really, really into bone broth. Then it was coconut water. Then it was green Mm -hmm. juice. Now it's kombucha. Uh, Next month is functional elixirs. It just keeps going and going. And when you remind people, like, remember you were really, really into that thing and now you don't do it anymore. They're like, oh yeah. And I mean, that's just, this is how this industry keeps making money. You just keep, you know, skipping from trend to trend to trend and trying new things. Um, But, you know, I will say that there has been a little bit of a course correction in the last year, mm-hmm. which I find promising. Um, and we could speak about that uh, if you want. Yeah. But I, I do think this industry is changing. Uh, I wrote a piece for the LA Times about how essentially the goopification of wellness is kind of going on its, it's kind of on its way out. Um, and for Can a number we, of reasons. Um, Irina, I, I, I want to talk about where we're, we're headed, but um, I just want to give people a chance one last time if you are listening um you are listening to a public affair Mm. my um my guest is rena Raphael, and she's the author of the gospel wellness we have about um 12 more minutes if you want to get a call in 608-256-2001 andrew um thomas our engineer is running the board and the phones today so be kind to him um and he also says that one of the the passing um trends was wheatgrass shots everyone loved wheatgrass for a minute um. All right. So before we we move into where we're at right now, Rena, can you help set up like what? I mean, I think everyone knows what goop is in like in in a really like broad term, right? Of like it's Gwyneth Paltrow and there's jade eggs and um it's it's 
yoga pants. But where, like, where were we when, when, um, I guess maybe you started your, your journey into, into wellness, like as a, as a reporter? Me? Uh, well, I started about like six, seven years ago. Um, and I will say when it comes to Goop, she gets kind of uh, outsized attention because she's a celebrity and because um, she does such kooky things. But she's such a small, small minority of this industry. And if you speak to most people who say that they're into wellness, they're not Goop followers. Um, and even people who do follow Goop, because I've attended, I think, four of her conferences now. Mm-hmm. The majority of her friends don't take her seriously. When you interview them, they're like, oh, of course, she's like, does ridiculous things. I don't take her seriously. Like, it's kind of taken as a joke. Um, they see health and wellness almost more as entertainment. And that has its own issues, by the way, because we shouldn't be treating health like it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, but, th- but there is some kind of misconceptions about the Goop clientele. A lot of times people who like Goop are like, I'm here for like the recipes and... Um, the beauty recommendations, you know, but I have a legitimate doctor. That being said, she does legitimize certain pseudoscientific ideas. So I'm not a huge fan of hers. Um, But I will say that we've come a ways from like, I would say a lot of the industry and even the media promoting, I would say the more ridiculous and insane ideas. I think there has been a little bit of a course correction. Um, and that's partially because I think of COVID-19. Mm. Um, I think the pandemic really pushed us to reevaluate our health purchases, even health itself, um, with a bigger emphasis on things like mental health. And so you see more and more consumers caring about whether something has scientific evidence. So you'll see that people aren't as easily duped by, you know, quote unquote, gut healthy tonics or, you know, stress relief supplements. Um, and part of it is the fact that they bought all that stuff and it didn't work. I mean, you speak to an average woman in LA or New York and they have a cabinet that is full of stuff that they've abandoned after a week, a CBD cream, supplements, whatever, some jade roller. And so they're kind of just like, I'm no longer you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, I'm buying all this stuff. And it's sort of why you've seen CBD completely fall off a cliff. Yeah. Because people bought a bunch of stuff and it didn't work for them. Maybe it works for some people, but for the majority of people, they're like, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So, well, um, and, and that sort of goes into what you're you were talking you've talked about in the book, which is that these things that aren't well regulated, right? It might be that like CBD works. I mean, we're we're in Madison, Wisconsin, where uh, you know most of cannabis is not legal. So it's like if you want if you <laughs> if you want to mm-hmm. interact with cannabis in any sort of way, it's, you know, C B D or Delta Eight or all these other um different forms of cannabis. And so um I'm sure there's people who would say, Oh, I I love my my C B D seltzers, but when they're not regulated, it's like anything can be sold as C B D and promise that um it's gonna solve all your anxiety and it's gonna cure your your hand cramps and um but it's not yeah. regulated. Like a, There's a very medicine. big difference between ingredient efficacy and product yeah. efficacy. Just because an ingredient works doesn't mean the thing you bought has it in enough potent ingredients, was um, well-shelved or created perfectly. Like That's the thing yeah. you see oftentimes. And so, yeah, um, when we don't regulate supplements or many of these things, you know, anyone can make them. doesn't necessarily mean they work. Um, so that's what I think we're seeing a lot of. And I think you're also seeing that people um, are kind of tired of being told what to buy and what to do. Um, Mm -hmm. They're fed up with being shamed about how to look, you know, they're kind of scoff at influencers who are trying so hard, especially Gen Z. So, you know, there is sort of this exhaustion of body image pressures and, you know, weight loss mandates and all of this, you know, kind of like math for eating, you know, a sandwich. Um, So there is kind of been like a little bit of a pushback to the wellness industry, especially by Gen Z. Um, They see what we kind of, Gen Z especially sees the last decade of the wellness industry is very much emblematic of millennials, of this sort of, you know, quote unquote, girl boss, perfectionist, kind of glossy idea of what health should be. And so when I speak to younger consumers, they very much say, uh, hey, if I wanna have an Oreo, I'm gonna have an Oreo and I'm not gonna drop dead. Like that's something that millennials are afraid of. 
uh, that's an exaggeration of millennials, (laughs) (laughs) but that sentiment of like, you guys are trying too hard and maybe this isn't something I need to spend a ton of money on or work so hard about or be so terrified of, Mm -hmm. um, I think is something that's becoming more and more relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rena, we only have about eight minutes left, so I really want to, um, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to get to. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for them, which is you have a whole chapter about, um, biohacking, which I was not expecting. Um, I, how, how do you think that biohacking is an extension of wellness? Um, and then I want to get to a caller before the end of the hour. Yeah. So I I do have a chapter on biohacking. Um, and you know, some people call that wellness for men, although it is trickling down to, um, women's circles as well. Um, but you know, it's funny. The one thing that I saw that was kind of, uh, I would say relevant to how women experience wellness is that a lot of times the men I spoke to who were really into biohacking, um, a lot of them were in really high pressured environments. Um, like let's say, uh, San Francisco, they were working in the tech scene, uh, where they felt like they were in a place where if you could even be 1% more productive, meaning you could work with less hours or have more energy, whatever it was, that was the difference between getting that coveted job or Mm -hmm. excelling to the next degree. And so for them, it was a way to sort of regain that control and have that assurance that they could make it ahead. And it's kind of very much, I think, in line with what you hear from women sometimes when they buy supplements or when they're really into wellness, where they say, uh, I, I need to download this app to sleep better because I can't get everything accomplished in a day, or I'm always exhausted from taking care of the kids, so I need to try this thing. It is kind of sort of the same thing where it is promising people control for what they feel like is a life that's feeling out of control. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about when in that that chapter, you also talk about, you know, freezing your eggs and, and prolonging your biology in that way. Um, and um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but just that that also aspect of like it feels sometimes it feels like we can't have it all unless we biohack. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know if I would say that, although I will say that, um, you know, I talk about the fact that biohacking and this idea of biohacking has sort of uh kind of pervaded women's spaces. And so you are seeing also just biohacking companies. Uh, some, you know, some are very illegitimate and some are pretty ridiculous, promising things like fertility and whatnot. Um, and then I do go from there to talk about um, the fertility space and kind of the marketing that could be detrimental to people. Um, there's a lot that science can do. We've made great strides, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a guarantee. Um, and so some of the marketing around, you know, egg freezing can be problematic. Um, I don't want to get into it right now because there's very, very specific yeah. examples and we'll be on the phone for a while, but there's a, an entire chapter on it. And uh, that doesn't mean that I'm knocking that industry. It just means uh, understand the marketing and take a, a critical eye towards it. Yeah. All right. Um, Rena, right before we go, uh, caller Amy, who is no longer on the line, just wanted to speak about um, the aspect of white privilege with goop and wellness culture more generally. Um, And I think along with that is also a a class um, conversation as well. Can you speak briefly to how um, that sort of privilege impacts who has access to wellness? Yeah. And I I think, you know, when I mentioned earlier that it's really thrived in a high income consumer, that's probably true. I think that there, I mean, there is a reason why it's certain pockets of America that are more wellness focused than others. um, And that's because they can afford it. And I think that's the issue with this industry is that it's just bursting with consumerism. It's always telling you, you need to make the right purchases. You need to buy these exact things in order to be well, and not everyone can access it. I think even things like saying, um, you know, the discourse around, you know, what was called healthy eating, um, this idea that everyone has time Mm -hmm. to cook fresh, nutritious meals uh, can also be pretty damaging to people. Um, If you're working two jobs and you're not making enough money to cover all of these groceries, I mean, how are you going to prepare all these foods? So this idea of just telling people like eat more vegetables, well, that's really hard for people to do. Um, So there are a whole bunch of ideas that I think that we've popularized within wellness discourse that are 
pretty, I would say, damaging to certain groups who cannot access this. Yeah. And, and not um, just saying, you know, eat your vegetables. It's eat your organic vegetables, non-GMO. Not even organic. Even just saying like, hey, you should be eating, you know, th- you know, nutritious meals for dinner and it should be like fresh food and it shouldn't be fast food. Well, try telling that to someone who has two jobs and yeah. has kids to take care of. I mean, the reason that sort of fast food or, you know, some of these TV dinners exist is because people don't have the time. And so I think sometimes we forget that, that there is a whole swath of Americans who can't really access that. Um, and they shouldn't be blamed necessarily yeah. for not being able to access that. Yeah, you um, and a, a lot of the debunking that you do in your book also points to um, sort of how many of the um, like studies that have been done on wellness you know, can't account for the or, or don't account for the fact that, yeah, maybe someone who has is is consuming only organic vegetables is having, you know, positive health rates, but they probably have access to going to the doctor once a year or um, those sort of also privileges that come with um, being, you know, more mobile in this in the society. Yeah. And that's generally the correlation versus versus causation issue, which right. is that you oftentimes, first of all, like studies around nutrition are extremely hard because you cannot keep people cooped up in a lab for 20 years and monitor their eating. <laughs> right. um, these are self-reported, mm-hmm. uh, generally uh, surveys. And not even that, I mean, yeah, oftentimes when you see these studies that are like, oh, these people who ate organic are, you know, live much longer. And it's like, well, could it be because they are higher income and they can afford a whole type of lifestyle (laughs) yeah you don't really know it's really hard to isolate these things so it's it's a really tricky field of science and so my only point is I would take uh, a lot of those studies with a grain of salt well Rena we are coming to the end is there anything that we haven't um, talked about yet that you want to make sure you have a chance to say before we go no um, I just I think we're headed in a more optimistic direction I think you know, misinformation is still a huge, huge problem. But uh, I do see um, consumers wisening up and reflecting a bit more before they purchase something or go all in on a protocol. So um, I'm hopeful. <laughs> but speak to me in a year. Uh, right. but, but I do think that I do think that people are, are wisening up just a bit. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll hold you to that. I'll, I'll reach out in a year and see where we're at in the wellness industry. Yeah. And just my last thing I would say is, is that if you enjoy something, then you enjoy it yeah. and then it's worthwhile. People are always like, oh, so you don't do anything? And I'm like, uh, you should see what I buy from Sephora. Like, if <laughs> I, 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 I don't believe kombucha does much for my health, but I'll still buy it because I think it tastes good. So yeah. there's no harm in, in buying something if you enjoy it. Just recognize that uh, they, uh, they might be overstating their health benefits. Yeah, someone's trying to sell you something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've been listening to A Public Affair. My guest was Rena Raphael, and she is the author of Gospel of The Gospel of Wellness, which comes out in paperback tomorrow. And um, I have to thank my engineer, Andrew, who was running the phones and the board, and thank Amy, who was out answering the phones in the lobby. I am Jade Isiri Ramos. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Up next is Madison Bookbeat. Pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted.